what we offer the public has to be user-friendly, it has to be time-competitive, it has to feel safe, and it has to feel clean. So if we offer what the public is looking for, yes, ridership will, will be automatic. This is Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged. This week, we've got two great interviews for you. First, with Aaron Weinstein of Transit CX. As you may know, public transportation over the last couple of years has really changed its focus on measuring KPIs. As a matter of fact, APTA did a survey and they asked uh, transit agencies around America, what's your number one KPI now? And for the first time in a long time, actually in recent memory, ridership was no longer number one. Coming out of the pandemic, people are focused on the customer experience, on customer service. And that's what we're going to focus on today with Aaron. Aaron has a great background at LA Metro and BART and other places, helping to lead customer service improvements. He's going to be talking today about how to build and enhance customer experience inside your agency and also for the passengers. And then I'm happy to have with us on the show Brandon Bartnack. Brandon's from Edison Manufacturing and has his own podcast, the Future of Mobility podcast. He's been kind enough to have me on several times over the last few years, and I wanted to extend the invitation to him to talk about some really interesting topics today, such as electric vehicles, what's happening with the supply chain, and also how we can improve innovation through small batch production. I think you'll find this a fascinating interview with Brandon and with Aaron, all on this episode of Transit Unplugged. This is Transit Unplugged with my special guest, Aaron Weinstein. Aaron is going to help us focus on a topic which is front of mind for most transit agencies, which is the customer experience, customer experience program. Aaron, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank, thank you for having me. I enjoy your Transit Unplugged podcast and have been looking forward to our chat today. One of the reasons why, Aaron, as you know, uh, invited you on the show was um, you were LA Metro's first executive officer recently for customer experience, and you created a very comprehensive customer experience program spawning over 100 initiatives with hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. Prior to that, you were at BART for the chief marketing officer where you created Bartable Relationship Marketing Program had some great innovative customer service partnerships, and led customer engagement and design for BART's $3 billion order of the fleet of the future train cars. So as, as you and I were talking uh, prior to this, a year or so ago, the American Public Transportation Association did a survey of their members, and they asked them, what are your KPIs now? How do you measure your own success, your key performance indicators? And for the first time, Aaron, in recent memory, uh, ridership was no longer number one. Now, number one was the customer experience, focusing on the customer. Transit agencies have figured out, I think, if you build it, they will come. What do you think of that? Well, uh, certainly if you build something that's, that's meeting customer needs, they will come. So I think that ties it all together. What we offer the public has to be user-friendly. It has to be time competitive. It has to feel safe and it has to feel clean. So if we offer what the public is looking for, Yes, ridership will will be automatic. So I've talked a little bit about your background. Is there anything else you want to emphasize? I would just say that uh, I'm originally from New Jersey. I grew up riding the uh, old Conrail system that preceded New Jersey Transit. And then when I moved to other cities, I continued to rely on buses and trains as a sustainable way of getting around. And I've always wanted transit to be successful. 
And for the last three decades, I've conducted hundreds of surveys and focus group projects to bring uh, the customer voice into decision-making and transit. Now, there's more than 20 transit agencies now that have customer experience programs. But for other transit agencies that are new to this, how would you suggest they start going about creating a customer experience plan? Basically, there's four steps. The first is to identify pain points that customers experience. And we usually do this by conducting comprehensive customer experience surveys that ask riders for feedback on 30 to 40 attributes of the service that they experience. Everything from on-time performance to personal safety to the ease of use of trip planning tools. The second step is to have a deep understanding of those pain points. When customers rate a certain aspect of services only fair or poor, we want to find out why. And we can ask that on a survey. We can also do ride-alongs with customers to have those conversations with them while they're experiencing what they experience. The important thing, though, is to understand the problem that we're trying to fix so that when we are throwing resources at it, we're fixing the right thing. So, for example, if customers rate station cleanliness, low. We want to understand what aspect of cleanliness most concerns them. Is it litter? Is it graffiti? Is it odor? And where is it? Is it at the platform level or on stairwells? And when is it? Is it in the morning, evening, weekends? When, when are they uh, seeing the problem that they see? This is important information to ensure that the customer experience improvements we put into place hit the target. The third step is then to prioritize those pain points. For the past three decades, I've used a tool called the Quadrant Chart that helps do that. We also overlay other information like the cost to remedy a problem, as well as our readiness to remedy it, and equity and inclusion considerations as well. And then the final step, step four, is to actually develop the remedies and get them funded and implemented. I've done that through a collaborative process with the staff who are knowledgeable about each area in in the agency. So chances are there are subject matter experts that actually know what the solution is, but they haven't implemented it because they've run into obstacles that they've encountered. So part of the discussion has to be understanding what those obstacles are. Maybe, for example, they can't get the supplies they need, or maybe there are work rules that get in the way or lack of funding. So those are really important discussions to have before we identify the remedy. So those are the four key stages in developing a CX plan. It's a significant undertaking, so it's important to have dedicated staff to perform that kind of work. Tell me about journey mapping. How does that work and what type of insights would that surface for an agency? Journey mapping is is a really powerful tool. We look at seven stages of the transit customer journey, everything from planning their trip to the first mile access to their stopper station, the waiting experience, paying, uh, the ride itself, connecting to other services, and finally that last mile egress. So that's the whole journey. And in each of those seven stages, we ask ourselves, what do customers see? What do they hear? What do they smell? And what do they feel? All of the senses. And what are the pain points we need to address to make those stages a great experience. For example, during the journey, 
Are there moments when the customer feels confused or anxious? The best way to understand the journey is to actually accompany customers on their journey and have them tell you what they're experiencing at each stage. So sometimes it can be helpful to also observe rider behavior. For example, if you see people rushing up the stairs with their luggage to catch a train uh, that's not waiting there, that probably reflects a lack of real-time information at the base of the stairs. So those are important insights as well. We also think about the diverse needs of diverse customers. So for example, a mom with a stroller who needs to ride the bus or a person who can't afford a smartphone data plan and how they access transit information, or how a customer who is blind navigates a train station, just to give a few examples. This is another place where CX, customer experience, crosses over into equity and inclusion, the work that you've been doing in that realm. That's great. Many, many of uh, the guests here on the program often talk about how they're tackling you know, their different pain points related to on-time performance, security passenger information. But this is a a focus that I think many transit agencies are focused on now, which is institutionalizing customer focus. You've talked about that some. Tell me what that actually looks like. Well, you're, you're right. Typically, a CEO or a board of directors can pick at most a few key pain points to focus on and be successful in turning around. But the reality for customers is that there are literally thousands of potential pain points that can't be managed in a top-down way. So institutionalizing CX is really a way for CEOs and boards of directors to expand their input. For example, transit agencies can build CX into their performance appraisal systems to spur conversations about customer experience between supervisors and employees at all levels of the organization. This can help uncover and remedy pain points that don't always rise to the top in a centralized CX effort. Like, for example, say the process riders go through when they apply for a discount program. That won't necessarily make it up there with the top pain points of safety, security, and on-time performance. Another opportunity to institutionalize CX is to revise policies around product development to ensure customer needs are considered and products undergo user experience testing before they're finalized and launched to the public. This will lead to better design of ticket vending machines, better apps, better train and bus designs, just to name a few products. Another example of institutionalization is to take a fresh look at KPIs. You mentioned that earlier to see how well they're aligned with the customer experience. So those are just a few of about 20 different institutionalization tracks that I've identified to uh, make CX ubiquitous in an organization. That's great. Aaron, you have a blog post on your website that discusses the importance of cultural transformation. What can a transit agency do to nurture a customer-centric culture? As we talked about a moment ago, thousands of pain points cannot be managed centrally. They require employee-customer centricity at all levels. For example, if an employee encounters a customer with a cognitive disability that appears lost on the system, how can they help? Or if an employee is involved in selecting seating for new stations or bus stops, what can they do to make it as comfortable, easy to clean, and durable as possible? To spur culture change begins with identifying the core beliefs and behaviors we would want all employees to have ideally. For example, empathy, 
a transit organization might want employees to be able to put themselves in the customer's shoes and be empathetic. Or another quality could be passion. A transit agency might want employees to feel passionate about giving back to the community. After an agency defines the beliefs and behaviors they want employees to have, then they can systematically integrate those into hiring, coaching, training, and recognition programs. And consistency and repetition are really key, uh, beating the drum, as change management people like to say. Finally, it's important to administer regular customer experience culture surveys among employees to gauge how attitudes and behaviors are changing over time to recalibrate the culture change initiative. Talk to us about the internal pain points that you mentioned at the top of the show as we wrap up uh, that hold staff back from trying to improve the customer experience and how a transit agency can systematically identify and remedy those pain points. It's especially hard. I mean, I've worked in small, medium, and large agencies. To me, it's the hardest in the larger agencies where there is so many overlapping layers of bureaucracy. Just like with rider pain points, it starts with data. So we survey employees about the pain points that they experience, especially as they're trying to improve the customer experience, what holds them back. And we ask them to tell us in detail so we gain a deep understanding. For example, a maintenance employee might talk about the difficulties they have getting parts out of the warehouse. Or an admin employee might talk about the procurement or hiring process in some detail. Once we understand and prioritize those internal pain points, then we engage the internal process owners to attack those pain points and reform policies and procedures. Sometimes it's also helpful to bring in third parties like process mappers to systematically deconstruct processes and find ways to make them quicker and easier for employees to get done. But again, ultimately, for employees to deliver customer improvements requires that we make it easier for them to do their job and attack the pain points that they experience. Aaron, thank you so much for spending some time with us today about the area which has really become top of mind for most transit agencies which is customer experience. If people want to find out more, I know you have a website with lots of free resources. We'll put a link to it in the show notes, but can you give us that website where people can go and get free information? Yes, the the website is transitcx.org and it includes uh, a resource page that can point you to some CX plans that exist already if you want to see what one looks like. Uh, There's also links to news articles and there are blog posts that I think uh, people will find valuable. Excellent. Aaron Weinstein, thank you so much uh, for the career you spent uh, helping public transit agencies on the West Coast, especially, but all over, improve their customer experience. It's really where we need to go now as an industry. Thank you again. Thanks again for having me today, Paul. Hi, I'm Alea Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. Let's talk for a moment about launching brand new service, providing transit for people who've never had it before. If you're launching as a new transit service or launching a service in an area where transit hasn't been provided before, you're probably facing two audiences, people who have been eager for transit and are delighted to see it arrive, and people who don't know that they need a transit at all. So how do you address both audiences? First, your primary messages need always to be around information. What is this new service? What do the vehicles look like? Where will it stop and go? 
How often will it run? How much does it cost? These are messages all audiences will always need to one degree or another through time. Make them accessible and easy to find by including them on your website, social media, and distributing printed materials to community partners. Beyond basic passenger information, when you're launching a new service, you have the opportunity to educate the public about transit's benefits to individuals and to their community. This is a long-game promotional strategy, so don't expect a flood of new passengers and transit advocates just because you tweeted about improved air quality. Instead, plan on a two- to three-year growth marketing plan, picking a couple of key messages and finding new and attention-getting ways to share that information over the life of your plan. Your benefits messages might include stories about transit's local environmental impact, reduction of traffic congestion, and a positive effect on the local economy. Prior to launching your long game, set a schedule for surveying the audience before and after to measure how their opinions have shifted. Conduct this opinion polling alongside ridership counts for a view into the overall impact of your marketing. If you'd like to talk more about marketing brand new service or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y. Thanks for sticking with us today on our Newsmaker interview for Transit Unplugged. Today, I'm excited to have with me a friend of mine, Brandon Bartnek, who is Vice President and General Manager of Edison Manufacturing and Engineering, and he's also the host of the Future of Mobility podcast, of which I've been a guest a couple times. So you're the General Manager of the company? I am. Dude, that's awesome. (laughs) Well, welcome to the show, Brandon. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, great to be here. So uh, Brandon and I are in the same uh, kind of headspace, I guess, on our podcast. We talk about technology, what's happening in the future. So we thought you should, I've been on your show a couple of times. You ought to come on mine and let's talk, let's talk uh, the future of mobility, Brandon. Yeah, looking forward to it. So uh, future mobility, my background is in the vehicle technology transportation or development space. One of the reasons I, I enjoy getting your perspective so greatly is I firmly believe that developing technology for the sake of developing it doesn't do much good for the world. It's really how do you develop that technology and then deploy it in a meaningful way to make the difference you're trying to make. And it seems like your career and the work you're doing now, a lot of it is focused on, hey, how do we actually make the impact and improve transit and transportation systems for people? Not an area where I have much expertise, but I really enjoy learning from you and others. And I think it's critical for people in my perspective to be learning from you guys and, and hopefully also the other way for people who are deploying the technologies who have a great grasp on what goes into actually developing the technology. Absolutely. You're coming to us from the Detroit area, right? Correct. And that's where, of course, in American history, that's where a lot of our automotive uh, history has been. And now it's kind of spread out some. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Brandon, and how you got to where you're at and what you do? Yeah, sure. So mechanical engineer by background, started my career at Boeing in process manufacturing engineering, then went to an engineering services company called FEV, spent a little over five years there. And in that role, FEV is engineering services working on the company or working with the companies to develop future transportation solutions. And it's a lot of electrification. It's a lot of hydrogen. It's a lot of autonomous connected vehicle technology, as well as making improvements on the tried and true conventional vehicle systems, internal combustion engines, drivetrains and such, all working towards creating this this better future state for transportation. I, I left FEV about a year ago, joined Edison, and that's yeah, currently now in, in this general manager role, also leading business development here. Edison is really, for me, kind of the next evolution in my, my thinking. So I mentioned developing technology for technology's sake isn't a great 
idea for a company or the world. Also, developing technology, it doesn't do much good if you can't build the technology. And now I'm focused on that, that next step of, as Edison, we are a contract manufacturer. We work with companies to assemble complex mobility and energy products, specifically that are not well suited for highly automated production. So there's great solutions out there. Automotive industry is very good at doing 50, 100,000 of something per year, a million of something per year. But as we're seeing the transportation and mobility ecosystem evolve, there's many more applications where it's a few dozen, a few hundred, a few thousand of something that need to be built. And this produces more challenges, different challenges for manufacturing. And Edison is built around solving those for our company, for our customers. Is it named after Thomas Edison? Yes, in, in that vein. So it's, it's, it's yeah. only tied along there. That's great. A lot of good inventions came out from that guy. So Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, that's good, man. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. I'm like a... Um a conference uh, attender. Yeah, I don't know what the right word is, but I go to tons of conferences every year and speak and moderate panels and all that jazz. And yeah. uh, just uh, recently was at a few other conferences, and there's a lot of talk about what you just talked about. Uh, one of the concerns a lot of people have, I don't know if you can speak to it, is the dearth of um, smaller vehicles for uh, paratransit industry, for small buses. Uh, evidently, supply chain issues have led to a big backlog of thousands of vehicles, uh, uh, especially for the smaller world hmm. of the major manufacturers. And of course, then we've had the issues at Proterra bus recently, where a bunch of their bus employees were laid off. And then on the autonomous side, there's been some change. Talk to us about that whole world uh, coming from Detroit and your experience you know, through the whole industry. What is going on? <laughs> Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that goes into that. So, I mean, the, the supply chain shortages and things that we have we saw during the peak of the, the pandemic are, for, for the most part, going away, but we still see remnants of that in, in several areas, I think, as you're alluding to here. And then the, the biggest or one of the biggest macro trends that we're seeing is a change in the way capital is being um, thought of, right? So for a long time, it was pretty easy to go and get money with a great idea and the promise of future growth and uh, an opportunity. That's changing as interest rates are increasing. And as there's more uncertainty in the market, we're seeing a much greater degree of conservatism and also prudence while venture capital is being deployed. So thinking of startups who are, we're seeing valuations much lower than they were at the peak of you could call it, call it a bubble potentially, but much lower than they were uh, even a few months or a year or two ago. And this effect is actually, it's not just in the startup world. We're seeing it throughout the entire corporate world too, where you have established OEMs and suppliers and, and everyone who are, they want to play in these emerging markets. They want to play in the electric bus area. They want to play in these areas where electrification and new technology is eventually going to take off. And five, 10 years from now, it's critical that these companies have a foothold on them. They have market share because that's going to define the success of their company. But those markets aren't mature enough to stand on their own. And we're seeing that the question of how do you actually play in those markets without over leveraging yourself, without deploying too much capital and setting yourself up for a, a, a tough situation from a cash flow or, or even a return on investment perspective. So where do you think we go? I mean, the banks, you know, you had S, you had the Silicon Valley Bank meltdown a couple of weeks ago. Uh, other banks are on watch lists. Capital is tightening, clearly, is what you're saying. Do you, do you see a way through for our industry on the technology, new technology development side? 
Yeah, so I would, I'm not, not going to pretend to understand kind of the full global uh, finan financial markets and, and such. I think there's uh, yeah, some, some complexity there that I, I certainly don't, can't, can't make any prediction there. But yeah, it, it is interesting to see how that plays out. At least part of the solution we're, we're seeing is, and, and part of the reason I'm so excited about what I just am doing is this question of how do you in a capital efficient manner play in these markets that are uncertain and that's that's exactly that's why the company what the company's built around right so we had one customer who large company they have manufacturing facilities wherever they want they have this new product in a market that's uncertain and it's they want to be here but they don't know exactly when or how how much it's going to grow they get a quote in in house for on the order of 10 million dollars of capex to set something up it doesn't make sense at the, the volumes and the type of um, uncertainty that they're looking at. So they came to us and it was a few hundred thousand dollars to get started. And we're, we're marginally more expensive at producing those units early on. But what that does is it allows companies to come in and it lowers that initial risk. It lowers that initial kind of barrier to entry. And it allows companies to play in markets that they might be, not otherwise be able to play in without... Yeah, on undue risk, maintaining the optionality of where they can wait to see how things play out before making their big bets. There are certainly big, hairy, audacious problems that need to be solved with kind of the make or break, make a bet. And if you hit, you win. If you don't, then your company's going out. Like, there, there's certainly still a place for that. But we're finding that this softer solution of how do you dip your toe in the water in a capital efficient and prudent manner is, is a big piece of this puzzle that we're trying to solve. Let's talk about like the actual deployment of some of these assets. Um, so mm -hmm. I remember going to Memphis a few years ago and seeing scooters everywhere, all over the streets, up in a tree, uh, and, and not organized. Uh, then you had cities like my old city of Baltimore came in and said, we're not going to let that happen. Uh, mm -hmm. We're going to have some organization. You know, you're, if you're going to put out stuff like this and just dump it on our streets, we need to have certain rules and regulations about it. A lot of cities started doing that. Then you had the bikes. Now they're basically in racks. Uh, bigger companies are coming in. Uh, all these microtransit options that private companies came into cities and were trying, basically, seeing how they work. And then we've got the autonomous vehicles. Uh, you've got Nat Ford down at Jacksonville Transit and his test and learn facility. I remember I was there and there was a certain brand, I don't want to say the name of it, but they said, you know what, we've been testing this vehicle for a year and now this company just went under. <laughs> They're not going to be making this vehicle anymore. So talk to me about your understanding of where we're at in the market of these new, um, you know, future of mobility type, type vehicles. Yeah, if we, I mean, if we look at the autonomy space, I mean, it's, it's not just that one company, right? There's, there's been, even over the last few weeks here, a few other companies who have announced that they're unfortunately closing, closing their doors. And I, I don't know exactly how this, I, I still think there's a market and there will be automated vehicles on the road serving specific needs. But I, I think the important things are the companies who are solving constrained problems and have things where they're able to control as many elements as possible will have a huge advantage. So if you look at what these vehicles can already do, it's it's incredible. You get in it and you think that they that these are fully autonomous vehicles because I mean they they drive in a fully automated fashion the majority of the time. The problem is it's the edge cases where all the, the challenges are, and it's going to be a long time before we actually solve those edge cases. So the companies who are going to get those vehicles and continue to roll out vehicles on the road are the ones who are able to ignore and get rid of those edge cases for now and able to constrain the problem in a way that leverages the current state of the technology and beyond that are able to do it in a manner that solves a real business need and a need of society. Look at private roads, for example, like we see uh, 
for example, moving, I don't know, warehouse logistics and forklifts and right. yard trucks are very exciting, as well as certain supply chains, so middle mile, last mile type applications. But it's really the ones, I, I think, in the short term who are solving the most specific and intentionally picked solutions who are going to be rolling out here in the next few years. What, where are we at on um, new mobility? Uh, talk to me about, you know, so bikes and scooters are kind of old mobility, electric. We, we've been there and they're refining them and making them better. Is there anything new coming up on the horizon, any kind of new mobility? I mean, I know we got like, you know, flying drones kind of a thing where they could take people. That's a potential. Yeah. Uh, what, what else do you see or do you want to talk about that, Any? Yeah, there's still a lot out there. I mean, the yeah, eVTOL drone space, electrified aviation space is is exciting. Personally, I'm more bullish on some of those old technologies. Um, okay. I mean, bikes are great, especially electrified bikes when deployed correctly. The, the tough thing, and this goes back to what we started this conversation, like this, it's not a super sexy technology. There isn't, there's not a ton of excitement about it. And also it's challenging to deploy. So if you look at the real areas where, mm-hmm. Even these older technologies like bikes and scooters, like it, it, it's the collaboration between the transit agency and the technology provider where the magic is. It's not that someone has a better bike than someone else or or whatever. Like that's that's marginal. It's really where is the infrastructure set up in a way that best utilizes that technology and also frames it within a greater transit network, right? So no no one's solving all of their mobility needs by a bike, but I, I don't think you need a silver bullet here. I think what you need is bike plus bus plus light rail plus private use vehicle or taxi or rideshare like for the applications and having that menu to be able to provide to people I, I personally think is, is more important than going and providing a a new kind of uh, exciting mobility technology yeah I hear you it's interesting I remember I was in Louisville Kentucky visiting Carrie Butler down there a few months ago and a buddy of mine and I got on the scooters and we took the scooters for two hours all over the city. You know, we went to the hmm. Louisville Slugger Museum, and we went all over, and we just basically gave ourselves a tour of the city. I had a blast, man, and uh, I just thought, this is the best way to tour a city. I used to think it was those red-top buses, but now I think just give yourself a tour. Uh, but, you know, there are certain spots now where they will slow you down automatically. You can't go over a certain speed. Mm-hmm. You know, you go from 15 miles per hour or whatever the cap is down to five and then two, and you're like, oh, crap, we got to get back on to the right, to the green area. And the same thing, a friend of mine and I did the same thing, but with bikes um, around Seattle, uh, with their electric bikes and and they're just great. I love them as last mile or you know kind of exploring options. Like you said, it may not be mm-hmm. the coolest and the sexiest, but it, it it kind of is to me. It was awesome. Yeah, that's a great idea, and I've had some some similar experiences too. When when utilized correctly in the right setting, those things can provide a ton of value. Now, we talked a little about electrification. I know that's a big topic you like to focus on. Um, Talk to us about electric vehicles, hydrogen, where we're at in the development. I'm, uh, you know, I'm seeing a lot of talk about hydrogen fuel mm-hmm. as another alternative zero emission. What are you hearing, and wh- what do you uh, comment on that space? Yeah, so a lot, a lot of complex nuance and, and thoughts that go into this. I mean, a, a few of the highlights is one: I don't think there's a one one solution to solve everything here. It's it's not battery electric vehicles for all applications. It's battery electric vehicles, plus likely hydrogen fuel cells for the heavier duty applications. Think train, bus type applications, maybe shipping, things like that. Um, for for some of the heavier long haul trucking, um, some of those heavier applications, yes, I, I do see a place for hydrogen fuel cells. 
battery electric vehicles are excellent when they are deployed in the right places and you have the grid infrastructure that works and ideally is a sustainable grid infrastructure, one that's not primarily utilizing coal-fired power plants. And we're going to see that continue to grow. In the places where electric vehicles make sense, it's going to, we're just really on the precipice here and it's going to continue to take off. But I think, and we're already seeing this with some of the discussions in the EU with their ICE ban and and how there's kind of the the turning of the tides a little bit where it was everyone coming out of hey let's let's go and ban internal combustion engines as fast as possible. I think we're going to continue to see well well let's actually let's let's pump the brakes here in that there are a lot of applications where we shouldn't have internal combustion and in, in uh, city centers where air quality and tailpipe emissions are critical yeah you probably shouldn't have internal combustion engines running around here but. In other areas right outside there, I think the reality of trying to introduce all battery electric vehicles with the grid we have and the price point that we have and the material shortages we have, and also just from a sustainability perspective, I mean, LCA is tough because life cycle analysis, because people can skew it however they really want based on how they want what the results to be. But uh, based on what I've seen, I'm not convinced that full battery electric vehicles are the solutions. I think it's that plus hydrogen plus hybridization think mild plug-in hybrids with ideally cleaned up internal combustion engines and possibly look at renewable fuels. Renewable diesel is something I covered on my Future Mobility podcast not that long ago, which is really exciting technology. The ability to plug in a different fuel into an existing vehicle, an existing technology, and have a drastic impact. I think things like that we're going to continue to see. It's not just battery electric vehicles. Yeah, I mean, I hear you, and I think that is exactly right. That's exactly what I'm hearing from the market, too. I can't tell you the number of CEOs of transit agencies that I've talked to in the last six to nine months who have told me, Paul, if we go all battery electric and there is a Hurricane Sandy, like here in the East Coast was, how are we going to be able to solve or, or, or play our role of being the, the folks who help evacuate the city if the grid is down and we can't get power? And so we've got to have some vehicles that have an alternate fuel source. And so, uh, again, I mean, I've heard that from, I can't tell you, especially East Coast. Mm-hmm. And now I'm starting to hear it some in other places as well, where, where there's been concern about that, that the role of a transit agency in an emergency situation is to help with evacuations. And you want those vehicles not to be literally dead in the water, so to speak, yep. uh, because there's no power with the grid out for a couple of days like what happened in Texas, remember uh, last winter where there was those big concerns. I think it's important that transit agencies, like you said, explore all the options, including the existing ones that are on the table uh, when it comes to uh, what I call the the larger spectrum of environmental stewardship, which I think we're all accountable for. Mm -hmm. Any other final thoughts you want to share with us? Yeah, I would say, speaking of unsexy options, don't sleep on the aftermarket to have an impact on sustainability as well as safety, right? So 280 million vehicles roughly in the U.S., 13 million sold only last year. We're Every year we're turning over just a fraction. The average age of a vehicle is a little over 12 years right now. If we're going to have a huge impact on safety technology as well as cleaning up vehicles, we can't only influencing the $13 million vehicles each year that come on the market. We also need to be thinking about how are we addressing the rest of them or everything else that's out there because this isn't a game of just get as many new battery electric vehicles as you can on the market it's collectively how can we make a safer and more sustainable mobility ecosystem and we need to uh yeah we need, we need to think as such awesome what a great way to end the show brandon bartnack host of future of mobility podcast vice president and general manager of edison manufacturing uh, thank you so much for being our guest today on the transit unplugged podcast thanks paul really appreciate it Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged News and Views with our special guests, Aaron Weinstein and Brandon Bartnack. 
Coming up next week on Transit Unplugged, we have Martin Bean, CEO of Rome Transit in Banff, Alberta. It's part of Paul's Western Canadian tour. Let's hear a little bit from that interview on how he's helping visitors to Banff leave their cars behind. And with the majority of the hotels in Banff, we have a partnership where they pay us a monthly fee and we provide free transit for their guests. So when a guest checks in, they get a three-day transit pass and they can leave their car parked. If they came with a car, they leave it parked in the underground garage at their hotel and they just use transit to get around town while they're here. Don't forget to visit transitunplugged.com to sign up for the newsletter so you're always in the loop with whatever's going on with the show. In the meantime, if you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us at info at transitunplugged.com. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Transit Unplugged, the podcast. How would you like to see behind-the-scenes footage of the agencies that Paul visits? Then be sure to check out the new Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube, where transit evangelist Paul Comfort dives into the culture, the food, and the transit of major cities around the world. You'll see the operations control centers, how maintenance shops work, and the latest innovations taking place at agencies around the globe as we work together to improve the lives of our transit riders and our communities. Be sure to subscribe to Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube or at transitunplugged.com.